Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. January 1st, 2019 is when the Our Care, Our Choice Act went into effect here in the islands. Today we're going to be talking with Samantha Trad. She is with Compassion and Choices, and she is the Hawaii State Director. And we're going to be discussing what happened with this act in the year of 2019, and what do some of the preliminary data for 2020 look like, and is this something available to everybody, or are some patients potentially being left behind? So thank you, Samantha, for joining us today, calling in from California on your time off to be part of our show today. Thanks so much for that. Thanks for having me. Now, let's talk a little bit about the passing of the act. So this was something that took a while. There was a lot of years of preparation that were put into this. And when this was passed, this allowed people to choose if they wanted to consider taking medication to help with an end-of-life process. What exactly is the act covering and who might be eligible for that? Sure, great question. So the law passed in 2018 and went into effect on January 1st of 2019. And in order to access the law, you need to be an adult, 18 years or older, a Hawaii resident. You need to be able to take the medication yourself. You need to be mentally capable of making medical decisions. And you also have to go through a 12-plus step process in order to access the law, and um, and you also need to be terminally ill with six months or less to live. So um, the cliff notes of how to access the law, what if you meet those eligibility requirements, is you need to have two different providers, and right now those are physicians, who can confirm your eligibility so that you're terminally ill with a prognosis of six months or less to live, you have to make two oral requests to the main doctor who ends up writing the prescription, and those two oral requests have to be separated by a mandatory minimum of 20 days. There's also a mandatory requirement for a mental health assessment by a psychologist, psychiatrist, or licensed care social worker. Um, And then there's also a written request that needs to be signed by two different witnesses, and a final attestation form you fill out when you take the medication. I mean, I can already see some of the barriers with a 12-step process in all these visitations. I'm certain that there's rules for why that's implemented. Do all the other states have similar restrictions, or is there something unique that we do in Hawaii that maybe we need to take a look at? Yeah, well, Hawaii has the most restrictive law of all of the states. So now there are nine states in Washington, D.C. have all authorized the option of medical aid in dying. And all of the laws, with the exception of Montana, have been based off of Oregon's law. And Oregon's law has been around for over 20 years now. Uh, And if you look at the data from all of the departments of health and all the states, We have nearly 50 years of combined data, and in all the states, there's never been a single incident of coercion or abuse. Um, The only problems we hear about are patients who are eligible. They meet the eligibility requirements, but are not able to make it through the process and, um, and die trying to access the law. So it sounds like we may have some particular 
unique things going on here in the islands that make it a little more restrictive. And I think a lot of the concerns initially came from the question about whether or not there would be abuse. I mean, there's always a thought that, you know, would somebody use that if they were depressed or what if their family members were telling them to? But it's not, you know, with all that data, we just, it hasn't happened. So we can probably feel comfortable that that's not anything to worry about. You know, and I, I will say Hawaii, the Department of Health has really done a great job of implementing the law. They've done a lot of education and outreach. And the Department of Health has twice now recommended to the legislature to make some key amendments to the law to make it easier for people to access. So the Department of Health has asked the legislature to allow advanced practice registered nurses with prescriptive authority to be able to act as the the main physician and prescribe medical aid and dying for qualified patients. And, um, you know, this is well within the scope of and practice of advanced practice registered nurses. You know, Hawaii is really unique in, in, um, in the, the capabilities of APRNs. Um, and the Department of Health has also recommended that the, the main provider who ends up writing the prescription has the ability to waive that mandatory minimum 20-day waiting period if the patient is unlikely to survive it. And this is something Oregon has done to their own law. They've amended their law to allow the main prescribing um, provider that ability because there have been a great deal of, of terminally ill patients who have died during the mandatory minimum waiting period. And in Oregon, it's only 15 days. So potentially that five extra days could really make a difference for those people who want to access it. Do the other states include APRNs in their certifying uh, primary physician uh, mandate, or do they require it be someone who has an MD or DO degree, or what What are the requirements mm-hmm. of the other locations? Um, well, no state, no state has allows APRNs yet to be able to write prescriptions. And Hawaii actually, you know, they have led the way in um, in giving APRNs authority and, and certification and education. I mean, there are APRNs who have have PhDs and are um, really highly qualified. In fact, uh, there's a great doctor on the Big Island named Dr. Charlotte Sharpen. And, you know, she testified in committee this year and talked about how her own primary physician is an APRN because she trusts them so much. And, um, you know, they, they, they really are helping with the growing shortage of physicians in Hawaii, uh, especially on neighbor islands where it can be hard to find a doctor when you're healthy, let alone when you're facing your last months and weeks and days. You know, you don't want to be searching for a doctor who can help you to end your life the way that that you want if you're terminally ill. Um, So I think, you know, I think it was a great recommendation by the Hawaii Department of Health. Uh, There was a bill in the legislature this year that that passed out of the Senate. It made it through three committees in the House. Um, But unfortunately, when the pandemic hit, um, the bill wasn't able to, to become a priority bill to pass this year. 
Well, and I, uh, we all know about the issue <clears throat> regarding access for neighbor islands, and I know that that's a huge concern for folks. And having that ability to get in touch with the provider when you need to, and that's that's mm-hmm. urgent, and you're right. There are some pockets of our islands that don't have primary care access, let alone specialty access or even easy access for some of these folks. Now, there are some other – we mentioned that the pandemic sort of put this on pause because it not – not hitting that priority bill requirement, but the pandemic has also opened up the doors for telemedicine. How might that be something that could help? Well, uh, that's another way that Hawaii is unique. You know, Hawaii has really done a great deal of work when it comes to telemedicine. And um, right now we're seeing large medical systems like Kaiser and Hawaii Pacific Health, as well as private doctors, really utilizing telemedicine. And it's really helpful for for terminally ill people who already may struggle with going to a doctor's appointment, and especially now when they're at high risk during COVID-19, they're able to to do their medical um, consultations to obtain medical aid in dying, Um, depending on where they're at, through telemedicine if they've already established that patient-physician relationship. And this has been incredibly helpful for people so that, you know, they, again, they they can have their consultations from the comfort of their own home. Um, And I think it can really help have even more robust conversations with your doctor because you're a lot more comfortable when you're at home than when you're at, you know, a medical facility, you've had to wait in a waiting room, and especially during COVID-19 when you're trying to, to social distance and be safe, um, it's, it's really been great in helping patients um, so that they can safely get the care they need from the comfort of their home. All right. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. You're listening to The Body Show. And I'm here with Samantha Trad from Compassion and Choices, the Hawaii State Director. And when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the potential ways that this bill might be modified and how that might really equal the playing field for people who may want to access it in areas that may be remote or not have the same facilities available. And we'll also talk about what we've seen so far in this yearly report and the half-year report that has been put out about, what, July 1st, just a short while ago. And we'll talk about some of the statistics and what we know so far. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributors Ekahi Health, Ulupono Initiative, and The Hub Coworking Hawaii. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. And Samantha Trad from Compassion and Choices, Hawaii State Director, is here on the on the call, and we're talking today about the Our Care, Our Choice Act. And right before the break, we are talking about some of the ways that it could be expanded to consider allowing advanced registered nurses who are practicing as APRNs to participate in providing the service for patients and also to look at telemedicine as another alternative if there's difficulty in getting to see a provider as long as there is that pre-existing relationship. Now, I'm curious, Samantha, if it requires two doctors to certify, could one of those be telemedicine for someone who you're not necessarily a primary provider for if you need to make that certification? Is that a way? another way telemedicine might be helpful? 
Well, um, I, I, you know, Hawaii, they, I know that they made um, special exceptions for COVID-19. And so I do think that's possible right now during the pandemic. Um, thankfully, you know, telemedicine is available for those consultations, even when we're not in a pandemic uh, under the Our Care, Our Choice Act. Um, as long as the patient-physician relationship has already been established, then you can have uh, uh, voice only. So when we talk about telemedicine, you know, sometimes we're talking about like FaceTime and Skype, but then other times we're talking about voice only. And so it's really important to clarify that. So for voice only um, consultations, that's when the, the doctor patient relationship needs to be established. But I think that you can, you can establish that relationship if it's uh, virtual. Sure, um, through video, right? That, over the phone. Mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, that real video synchronous at the same time interaction, which I think Medicare did start to allow for establishing new patients. The pandemic really forwarded the cause of telemedicine quite a bit. And in doing so, it allowed us to do things in the medical world that we previously weren't able to do because of rural designation restrictions or because of some other type of logistical issue. So you're right. It kind of has opened up that possibility. And I look on that as a potential benefit for those who are in the neighbor islands who may have a hard time finding providers who would be willing to participate. So thinking about that, what were some of the statistics and how many people actually accessed this in 2019, and what are we seeing in 2020? So the report, like you mentioned, from the Department of Health just came out on July 1st. And, you know, I got to tell you, when this law first passed, we really weren't sure if anybody was going to be able to make it through the entire process to qualify and obtain a prescription for medical aid and dying. You know, we worked really hard on education and outreach Um, You know, John Radcliffe has been an incredible storyteller, uh, bringing attention to this issue. And the Department of Health, again, did a great job. So we know from the Department of Health that in the first year, 30 patients formally qualified for medical aid in dying and received a prescription for medical aid in dying. Of those 30 patients, 23 of them have died. And of those 23, 15 of those patients used medical aid in dying. And, you know, this is this is very familiar data that we see in all of the authorized states. Not everybody actually uses their medication, but just having the medication on hand gives patients a great sense of relief. In fact, um, you know, I met a man on the big island who told me he never felt more alive than the moment he received his medication, his medical aid and dying medication. And he said, I know that sounds completely crazy, but he didn't have to worry about what his end of life experience was going to be anymore because he had this option on hand. And he even told me he hopes he never has to use it, but just having it helps him to really live out his final weeks and days because he knows it's there. Um, And so we do see, you know, about a third of patients who go through that entire process and get their medication, about a third of them never actually use it. So the data that we saw really wasn't that surprising, given the fact it was our first year that this was authorized. Yeah. So um, I, I there so there were 30 patients who received prescriptions and 13 different physicians who wrote prescriptions. And this is a really important number because 
you know, we work really hard to normalize the option of medical aid and dying. It, it, you know, there's really no reason for it to be treated any differently than any other end-of-life option that a, a patient may choose. And so it's, you know, it, it's comforting to see that there were 13 different physicians and 30 patients who received prescriptions. That's almost about two to three prescriptions per doctor, you know, because what we don't want to see is just one or two doctors writing prescription because then it's not an option for everyone. It's only an option for those who happen to know the right person, you know, who can write the prescription. Um, and that's really not fair. You know, medical aid in dying is, is an option for everyone who is, a, is eligible. It shouldn't have to do with how privileged you are, with, you know, whether you live in a rural area or if you live in a city. Um, this is, death is, is one of the most personal things, if not the most personal thing that happens to a person. So this needs to be an option for everyone who's eligible. Well, and I think one of the other concerns that some folks had was that, you know, would this take the place of hospice? And in fact, looking at the statistics in some of the other states, they actually found a significant increase in the number of patients who utilize hospice services in addition to this. So that yeah. it wasn't replacing, it was sort of in addition combining, almost like it was a benefit that they use both. It was something they yeah. coordinated with. So has has that been something we see here in the islands too? Absolutely. And I would encourage anyone who's facing end of life to enroll in hospice. You know, Hawaii has really wonderful hospices and they can be incredibly helpful in the dying process. And we have seen hospices, you know, step up. And um, I know there's one hospice in Kailua that had a pharmacist actually come and train their staff on how to prepare the medication so that the staff at this hospice could be there by the bedside of the person when they took the medication so the patient wasn't, you know, didn't feel abandoned um, if the patient wants that, right? Not not every patient wants to have uh, medical staff or providers there when they take their medication. And, you know, it really should be up to the patient. Sometimes they just want to be with their family. But if they do want their hospice nurse there um, or a social worker or even a doctor, you know, it's really wonderful if they're trained and, and able to to be there for the patient. Um, and I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a little plug. You know, we do do free presentations, and um, I think a lot of providers in Hawaii know Dr. Groove, who's our medical director. Um, it's even easier for him to, to mentor and train um, doctors and nurses and social workers there because now he can do it virtually, and it's more normal to do it virtually. Um, but now there's a lot of doctors as well as nurses who have firsthand experience who are in Hawaii who can mentor others. Um, and so, you know, we're happy to, to put those pieces together if there are any, anybody in Hawaii who wants to be trained um, who's a medical provider or general public on how uh, medical aid and dying works. On that note, we will come back in just a few, uh, just a really quick break. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm talking with Samantha Trad, Compassion and Choices Hawaii State Director. When we come back, we'll talk about what have we seen so far in 2020 and what are the ways that providers can access more education if they feel they need it or find out who they can speak to, someone maybe who's done it and can help walk us through that process. We'll be right back. Stay with us. 
Support for The Body Show comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk shows. Mahalo to contributor PCAT, Pacific Center for Advanced Technology Training. Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here with Samantha Trad. She is the Hawaii State Director of Compassion and Choices. And right before the break, we were talking about some of the potential ways that physicians can find a mentor or maybe even APRNs if the legislature passes that to sort of help navigate that 12-step process because it is quite a process and you do need to make sure that everything is done correctly with the right time interval. Now, you mentioned at the top that of the show that there was a required 20 days, and Oregon has about 15 days in between requesting for the medicine. On average, how many days did pass from when people requested it uh, between the first request and the second request? Did everybody hit that 20-day mark? Was it even longer? What happened in 2019? So in 2019, we know that the the average um, waiting period between the first and oral request was 28 days, and the, the Department of Health even reported there was one case where it took 100 days for the patient to receive their medication. Now, the Department of Health only collects information if the patient made it all the way through the process, so we don't know the exact number of patients who didn't survive the process, but I know... Um, I've heard that um, from a doctor at Kaiser that they had a number of patients who otherwise would have been eligible for the law, but died really painful deaths in exactly the way they didn't want during that waiting period. Um, And I know Kaiser Southern California put out a study that showed nearly a third of their patients who otherwise would have been eligible died during California's 15-day waiting period. Um, every other state has a 15-day waiting period, with the exception of Montana. Um, Montana, their law passed through a Supreme Court decision, so they're just kind of always an outlier. Um, but it's, you know, we, we know that the waiting period is is definitely problematic. Um, for And I think part of it, too, is, that, you know, a lot of people don't realize that they – that there's this whole process. So they ask their doctor when their suffering becomes unbearable for, you know, that medical aid and dying thing, thinking that they can pick it up the next day, not realizing that it's, it's such a process to obtain it. And um, it's really tragic, you know, to hear these stories of people who thought they were going to have this option and then didn't survive the waiting period. So certainly taking a look at that waiting period is one thing that we should really carefully analyze and see if there is a way to make sure that you also mentioned that doctors could write a a note that makes them qualify even without the waiting period, should there be some extreme circumstances. And is that something available already? So that's that's available in Oregon only. And the Department of Health has now twice recommended to the legislature to make that amendment. Um, And we were very supportive of a bill this year um, that would have done that, that would have allowed the, the main provider who writes the prescription the ability to waive the waiting period if the patient was unlikely to survive it. And, you know, the patient would still have to meet all of the other requirements. They would still need two providers to confirm their eligibility. Um, but at least if they were, you know, in terrible pain and imminently going to die, they could access this option to take the medication themselves. 
Now, 2020 has shown some different data. And in fact, it sounds like the message and the the idea has expanded a bit. What are some of the rates of folks who have requested it so far this year? So according to the Department of Health from preliminary data, and, and, you know, of course, this isn't complete because there's about a 30-day waiting period before you're not waiting period, but grace period before you have to turn in um, all of the information if your patient uh, uses medical aid in dying. But we know from their preliminary data that 24 patients have received prescriptions so far this year. Now, that's higher than this time last year which is normal for implementation. You know, as, as um, there's more education done, as more people start talking about it, and really, you know, more people start asking their doctors and their APRNs and letting them know that they may want this option, um, we see more doctors willing to support patients in it. And we also know that there have been five new attending providers uh, who have supported patients in the option of medical aid and dying. So we're seeing more patients request it. We're seeing more doctors participate. Do we know how many patients have taken the medicine so far this year? Uh, From the preliminary data, there have been 13 patients who have ingested the medication. Now, we don't know how many of those received their prescription last year um, and how many of them received it this year. But we do know that by the end of June, it looked like about 13 patients had taken the medication. So it certainly sounds like the options are becoming more available, particularly with the idea of hopefully shortening the waiting period, but also expanding the types of providers that can provide the medication. And more importantly, just educating our local physicians that this is still something out there. And although it sounds really difficult with 12 different steps, it can be made easier. And there are some folks out there that are absolutely willing to help. Are there any other things that you'd love to see change about our current law? Any other modifications we should consider? Uh, I really think that, you know, adding APRNs, allowing APRNs, and really it's removing a barrier because otherwise APRNs are already certified to prescribe controlled substances. So I really think it's, it's, it's critical that APRNs be able to support patients in the option of medical aid and dying um, you know, Hawaii's mental health assessment, Hawaii's the only state that where it's mandatory. Every other state, it's optional. So a patient has three different mental health assessments they have to go through in Hawaii. And, um, you know, APRNs are also qualified to make those assessments, but they're not allowed to under the RCR Choice Act. And I, I'm not sure why that is, but it would be great to at least allow APRNs to be able to do that. Um, I would like to see that be optional instead of mandatory. Uh, and then, you know, reducing the waiting period to 15 days like the other states and um, allowing the main provider who writes the prescription that ability to waive the mandatory minimum waiting period. Because again, you know, we don't know how many eligible patients didn't make it through the process, but I know, you know, at Compassion and Choices, we get calls and um, emails from people who, who are struggling to find those two doctors um, especially if they're on a neighbor island, uh, especially if they're in a rural part. Um, and so, you know, it's, we need to remove these barriers. And I would encourage everybody to do two things. One is if you think there's even a 1% chance you may want this option one day, even if you're healthy or especially if you're healthy, 
ask your doctor as soon as you can if they would write the prescription for you if you qualified. You know, if you were terminally ill with six months or less to live, would your doctor support you in the option? Would your ATRN, if that's who your provider is, you know, make sure that, that you have the support you're going to want at the end of life early on because you don't want to find out that your doctor APRN, for whatever reason, won't support you when you're in your last few weeks. And if you, you know, if you do think that the law needs to be amended, I encourage you to, to go to our website and, um, you know, you can even email me yourself. And we're really hoping to have a bill again next session uh, so that we can make these, these really important amendments that the Department of Health has recommended. Well, those are some great things that people can take a look at. And I have had patients ask me about that process. And you mentioned ask when you're healthy. Yeah, I had people way too healthy ask about the process. And I said, but you don't have a diagnosis. But it was a good exercise for me to really formulate my own thoughts and find out what my feelings would be and get to know the process so that if I am called to do it, by one of my patients. I'll know more about it and be successful in navigating through what is currently a little confusing, but hopefully soon will be a lot easier. I want to thank you, Samantha, from Compassion and Choices, our Hawaii State Director, and for sharing with us your expertise today. If you'd like to hear the show again, you can click on hawaiipublicradio.org, follow the links to The Body Show. You can also find us on the HPR app. Our engineer is David Chong. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and we'll see you next week when we talk more about health topics right here on The Body Show. See you then.